You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. In the beginning was the singularity. And the singularity was infinitely dense and massive. And random fluctuations occurred within the singularity, causing it to double itself 60 times in less than a fraction of a second. And thus the universe was born in a Big Bang, according to the current scientific theory. Some 10 billion years later, a giant molecular cloud caused by the Big Bang gravitationally collapsed. Most of the debris mashed up into the sun and the rest into the other planets of the solar system. And thus, Earth was born. Within 450 million years, in a happy coincidence, atmospheric conditions on Earth led non-living chemical compounds to become more complex. And in time, they began to take on the properties of life. And through the next 550 million years, these molecules, through more fortunate accidents, spawned single-celled life forms and later multi-celled life forms. And through billions and billions and billions of more fortunate accidents, ultimately, this led to all the plants and animals of our world today. Sometime, four to seven million years ago, through more fortunate accidents, a new life form emerged from the great apes an ape that could control its impulses, reason about others, and communicate in complex ways. This was the genesis of humanity. And humanity, the triumph of this evolutionary process so far, continues its development forward to the next great leap. In former times, humanity made religions, fashioning gods in our own image. And in the name of those gods, humanity built societies and codes of conduct to oppress people, to compel them to conform to some restrictive definition of good behavior. But now, in our enlightened age at last, humanity has recognized its folly and rejected all that. We have science now to tell us that we don't need gods. We've developed a culture that lets us be free to be whoever we want to be. And through the indomitable human spirit, science, and technology. Someday we will overcome all social problems, disease, aging, and death, and we will live forever. We will seize control of evolution and fulfill our destiny by practically becoming gods. Quite a story, isn't it? That is the story that stands behind our culture today. And make no mistake, that is a religious story. It has a creation account. It purports to tell us who we are, that we were formerly ignorant animals who have increasingly enlightened. It defines sin or evil as that which restricts people from being able to act on their own desires. It promises salvation and eternal life through science and human endeavor. It has a view of the end, the triumph and practical deification of people, and it has an ethic It tells us how we should live here and now. The Supreme Court explained it like this in the 1992 Planned Parenthood case. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, meaning, the universe, and the mystery of human life. In short, do whatever you want. 
You are free to choose your own values. You are free to define right and wrong. You are free to define who you are, where you're going, and what your life should be about. That is the religion of today, constructed on this myth of a godless creation and random chance. But friends, despite our world's insistence that this is all some ironclad scientific truth, in actuality, this is just the latest in a series of creation myths that have been told by every religion and culture on earth throughout history. This is the latest attempt to reason from what we see in everyday life to explain bigger things. This is the latest attempt to worship the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And simply because today we worship the so-called laws of physics instead of the rising sun doesn't mean that we've actually progressed very far. Because what progress has this modern religion given us? Well, it's brought us basically back to the place described in the book of Judges, where everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And just like then, our contemporary religion has led us to disaster today. In the West today, there is absolute moral anarchy. As Isaiah describes, there are people calling good evil and evil good. There are multitudes of depressed and confused people wondering why wallowing in their own desires isn't giving them the happiness they would expect. There is shocking criminality everywhere. Has mass murder not become mundane in recent days? The butchery of children has been glorified as a political cause. You know, murder and rape have become so trivialized they barely make the news anymore. Folly is called wisdom, reality is denied, evil is unrestrained. Our contemporary religion has not led us in evolution, progress, happiness, and triumph. It has plunged us into chaos, madness, despair, and death. Friends, we need a reality check, and we get one in Genesis chapter 1. Because Genesis tells us the truth. There is a God who is supreme, good, just, loving, and kind, who reigns over all things, times, cultures, and people, who created things in a good, orderly way, who speaks a good word that brings about joy and goodness, and who is justly angered by human evil, who will hold us all to account. And these are the truths we begin to see this morning as we begin a series in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Today we'll be in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. And this morning we're going to consider three points. We will this morning first ask some big questions about the biblical account of creation. Second, we'll see seven truths about God and his creation of all things. And third, we'll learn how the creation points us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We begin with our first point as we ask some big questions about the biblical account of creation. Now, for the last 200 years, people have wondered about the reliability of the biblical account of creation because of the challenge posed by the contemporary scientific myth. So I'd like to spend a moment and consider some big questions that have arisen from the apparent conflict between the Bible and so-called science. First, is Genesis 1 reconcilable with the contemporary scientific account. Put differently, is Genesis 1 describing the same thing as the current scientific theories of Big Bang or evolution? 
In recent years, this has become a fairly trendy position for Christians to hold. Will it work? Well, I'm going to talk about evolution next week, but for now, let me discuss Big Bang. If what you mean by the Big Bang is the idea that mathematics seems to show a nearly instantaneous generation of the universe, then that does not necessarily contradict the biblical account, where God speaks everything into existence and it just appears. But I don't think this is as neat a solution as many Christians today want it to be. First, because in Genesis, the earth is created before the stars and not vice versa, as the prevailing scientific theory holds. And second, because it is a big mistake to allow the contemporary scientific myth to influence how we read scripture. Because the modern scientific myth is not value neutral. We've already said that Big Bang is really part of a larger quasi-religious body of thought that tries to explain the universe while denying the existence of God. Friends, if we try to read the Bible through that lens, our biblical interpretation will necessarily be corrupted. We should not try to force Genesis 1 to conform to Big Bang any more than we should try to force it to conform to the Babylonian creation myth or the Hindu creation myth. Each of these religious accounts contains mutually exclusive ideological commitments. They just don't go together. And we cannot force scripture to merge with any part of an anti-God worldview without compromising the truth by committing the idolatry of syncretism, which is merging religions. So I don't think we should be quick to say Genesis 1 is just a biblical description of Big Bang. Question two, how should we read Genesis 1? Many people today say Genesis 1 is poetry that can be legitimately interpreted in a non-literal way. However, Genesis 1 lacks the structural markers that characterize Hebrew poetry. And the rest of the books of Moses and the rest of the Bible treat Genesis 1 as containing actual historical content. I'm just going to give you one example for the sake of time. Exodus 20 explains the Sabbath command by saying, In six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. The creation account is treated as a historical reality. I think we're meant to read it that way too. So when this talks about water, I think it's talking about water not dark matter or some physics construct, okay? I think we want to understand what it's saying means what it says. And yet, we need to remember that Genesis 1 is a historical text. Our author Moses is not writing a 21st century science textbook. Now, to be sure, Genesis 1 does have something to say about the scientific mythology of our day, but we need to recognize that was not the fundamental purpose of this passage. Moses here was writing in a particular place and time to a particular group of people, to the Israelites who had come out of slavery in Egypt. And Moses is writing to them about their God. And as he does that, he is contrasting the truth about God with the false myths that were popular in his day, the myths that Israel had been exposed to in Egypt or would be exposed to in Canaan. Myths that taught the existence of many gods who were within creation. These myths taught the eternality not of the gods but of matter. And they taught that the gods created by imposing order upon matter which previously existed in an undefined chaotic state. So I want you to see here, Moses is writing in his day into his situation against the false views that were prevalent in his time. Now a third question. 
What does the Bible say about the age of the earth? Is it roughly only 6,000 years, as some have advocated, or billions of years old? This is a question that has led many Christians into intense conflict with one another. And I think that's very sad because this is not a doctrinal issue where this kind of conflict is necessary. Because the Bible never directly says the, Bible, or the earth is X number of years old. So clearly the age of the earth is not an essential doctrine. It is not a gospel issue. It is not a litmus test for orthodoxy or biblical interpretation. Over the years, Bible-believing Christians have, with integrity and sincere faith, come to differing answers on this question. Because God has given us a written revelation in the Bible and a general revelation in nature. And if we understood these revelations properly, we would see that they are not in contradiction. But for a variety of reasons, Christians have not come to a universally agreed upon harmonization of these two revelations. Christians have interpreted the available data in different ways, and that's okay to do. And because we want to major on the major things at this church, because we ask our members to agree on gospel issues and allow liberty on more debatable questions, the age of the earth is not an issue that this church is going to take a hardline stance on, and it is not an issue that will ever divide this church. But hear me when I say that does not mean that everything concerning creation is an open question. It's not. The opening chapters of Genesis do give us some truths which are gospel issues that believers must agree on. For instance, we must believe that God is the direct creator of the creation and of life. We must believe, as Jesus and Paul did, that Adam and Eve were real historical people. We must believe that humanity is a distinct creation of God, made in God's image, separate from the animal kingdom. And we're going to talk about that next week. These are essential doctrines related to creation. But the age of the earth is not one of them. Fourth, and this is the last question before we get to the text. Does the biblical creation account really have credibility anymore with the scientific challenge? Well, to answer this, I would point out the current scientific myth has some serious problems. For starters, where did that singularity come from that caused the Big Bang? Well, there's theories out there, but they read like something out of a Pulp Fiction sci-fi novel. Seriously, though, how did the universe spontaneously arise out of nothingness? How can life arise out of non-life? Is this thing going to acquire the properties of life if it sits here for five billion years? And if not, why would we expect that the same sort of thing would happen on a micro scale? Right? It just can't happen. The proponents of the so-called scientific view have some really hard questions to answer. And the biblical account explains these things very well. We don't have to answer where did the singularity come from. Because, friends, if everything that ever happened is a sequence of cause and effect reactions, ultimately at the beginning you've got to have a first eternal uncaused cause. And that's God. God can make matter from nothingness. God can make life from non-life. Biblical creation has a decided logical advantage and simplicity that the prevailing scientific myth lacks. All right, so I think we've addressed some of these sort of like front matter issues now. Let's finally turn to our text in Genesis 1 as we come to our second point in which we see seven truths about God and his creation of all things. Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now these are famous words. What do they mean? 
Many people read Genesis 1-1 and assume this is describing an introductory act of creation undertaken by God at the very first moment of history. And that is possibly cor the correct reading. But I think it's better to understand Genesis 1-1 as an introductory verse that summarizes the action of the first major section of the book, which runs from 1-1 through chapter 2, verse 3. And I'll give you my reasons. First, Genesis contains 11 distinct literary units, and the other 10 all begin with a clear introductory statement. So we should expect the first section would have one as well. Second, in the rest of the book of Genesis, when the Hebrew word translated beginning is used, it describes a period of time, not a point of time. So I understand verse 1 here to be describing not the first moment of creation, but the period of creation, that is the seven days, which are described in chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 3. And third, as the week of creation unfolds in our chapter, we will see that in verse 8, on the second day, God creates something and names it heaven, or a more literal translation of the Hebrew would be heavens. And in verse 10, God creates something and names it earth. And so literally, as Moses describes the week of creation unfolding, he describes God creating the heavens and the earth. So I understand verse 1 to be summarizing the week of creation. Now, in this first verse, we are introduced to the main figure in Genesis, in the Bible, and in history, God. This may be a painful reality check for some of us, but we need to know that we are not the central figure in the universe. It's not all about me, and it's not all about you. Rather, speaking of Jesus, God in human flesh, Colossians 1 says all things were created through him and for him. In the end, it's all about God. And so this morning, we're going to get the focus off of us, and we're going to learn some things about him. And what can we learn here about God? Well, four things from verse 1. First, God exists. It's often said that Genesis 1 does not argue for the existence of God. That's not quite right. Genesis 1 does plenty of arguing for the existence of the God of Israel as opposed to the idols of the nations. But it is true that God's existence is simply presupposed by this passage. Moses doesn't begin by telling us about God's origins or background because God is eternal. He has no origins or background. And Moses doesn't feel a need to write a systematic theology explaining God's attributes as though God needs some lengthy introduction here because the original readers... The Israelites already knew about God from their experience in the Exodus. So instead what Moses does here is he introduces us to God by pointing to God's work. Friends, we can learn a lot about God through his work, especially his work in creation. Paul says in Romans 1.20, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse Creation puts all the world on notice that God exists. That's obvious from what God has made, or from the fact that something exists rather than nothing, or that life exists, or that there are natural and physical relationships that are so finely tuned and exact that they can be called scientific laws, or that the earth is located in the most life-friendly part of the solar system and galaxy in an area perfectly engineered to support life by a vast number of factors, any of which, if slightly off, would preclude the possibility of life on our planet. Or from the existence of genetic information in our DNA, in a beautifully simple but massive code which indicates a divine programmer. Friends, Genesis 1 
And the world whose creation it describes declares simply and unmistakably that there is a God. Second, God is unique. Now this is not a revolutionary idea to us, but it was in the ancient world. Because most people back then were polytheists. They believed in many gods within creation with job descriptions. So there was a sun god or a river god or a fertility god. Genesis 1 says, no, there's only one God. The Hebrew verb translated created in verse 1 is grammatically singular because God is one. And God is not part of creation. He was before creation. He is outside of creation. He is unbounded by space and time. He is other. That's part of what it means when we confess that God is holy. He is different than everything else. And so already we see how this passage is combating false religious ideas the Israelites had seen in Egypt or were about to see in Canaan. Because Moses begins the scripture by powerfully declaring, Israel's God alone is God. And the creator is to be worshipped rather than the creature. Friends, God will brook no rival. He alone is worthy of our worship. Third, God exists in community. While the verb here translated created is singular, the noun translated God here is plural. The term is Elohim. Now, Elohim in the Old Testament does not always speak of God. But when it describes things other than God, it's always describing more than one of those things because it's a plural noun. And in those cases, it takes plural verbs. However, when Elohim is used to speak of God, as it often is, It's a plural noun that takes singular verbs and other singular grammatical structures. And the best way to understand this is there is an aspect of plurality within this one God. We'll see the the same thing next week when we see in Genesis 126 that God says, let us make mankind in our image. And I'm going to argue next week the best way to understand that is, again, there is an aspect of plurality within this one God. Now, I think it's too much to say here that Moses was fully aware of the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. That was revealed later in the New Testament. But here in this first chapter, we see plurality in this one God, which we understand as evidence for the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, what does this mean? God does not exist in solitude. He is unique, but he is not lonely. He is not lacking. He does not create out of a feeling that something is missing in his life. Friends, nothing is missing in God's life. Because God exists in the unending, glorious, joyous community of the Trinity. He is one God who eternally exists simultaneously as three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The fourth thing we learn about God in verse 1 is that he created everything. Verse 1 says he created the heavens and the earth. Now, as we proceed through the rest of this chapter, we're going to see that refers to the visible universe. But friends, you need to know the Bible tells us God did more than just make the visible cosmos. He also created an invisible spiritual realm. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him, Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. That's a reference to various angels. Colossians 1 indicates that the spiritual realm and its inhabitants were created by God, just like the material realm and its inhabitants were created by God. But when was this invisible spiritual realm created? Well, we're not explicitly told anything about that here in Genesis, so we've got to be careful. We are treading the line of speculation at this point. But I think an answer emerges in Job 38. 
God speaks, saying, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. The morning stars and sons of God, there are another reference to angels. And apparently, they already existed and worshipped as earth was created. So when we come to Genesis 1 verse 2, we're going to see there's already something here being labeled as earth. So I think that means we have to understand the spiritual realm was created at some point before what is described here in the rest of Genesis 1. Now while we're on this topic of the spiritual realm, many people have wondered when Satan fell relative to the account of Genesis 1. We are not provided any clear answer. We know simply it must have happened prior to Genesis 3, when the serpent tempted humanity. Because Revelation 12 says that serpent was Satan. So God created the invisible spiritual realm and the visible universe. John 1, 1 to 3 says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The Father made all things through the Son, His Word. And God did this out of nothingness. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The ancient pagans were wrong. Matter is not pre-existent and eternal. God's word alone created all things from nothing. And now as we continue in Genesis 1, that takes place. In fact, as we come to verse 2, we find it's already occurred. Surprisingly, we're never told in Genesis about the very beginning of our world because as we read verse 2, we find that God has already created the matter that belongs to it. Just as God created the spiritual realm before the action of Genesis 1, God has also created some matter prior to the action that is now described. And Moses now describes what that matter was like. Look at verse 2. The earth was without form and void... And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The first thing God made was earth. Now recognize how contrary that is to the prevailing scientific worldview. Carl Sagan, a physicist, infamously said, We live on an insignificant planet of a humdrum star lost in a galaxy tucked away in some forgotten corner of the universe. Sagan says our world is irrelevant, but the Bible says our world was the beginning of the material creation. Before the sun, before the moon, before the stars, God built the earth. Friends, this world matters to God. God's plan unfolds primarily in this world, and what happens here matters tremendously to Him. But as our world is first described here in verse 2, it exists in this sort of murky, strange state. And three things are said about the murky condition of the world at this point. First, the ESV follows the Old King James Version in describing it as being without form and void. But the Hebrew word translated without form appears often in the Old Testament, and it means something like desert or wasteland. The word translated void is very rare in the Old Testament, and it's a bit uncertain in its meaning. But what we can say about it is that every time it appears in the Old Testament, it appears alongside the term without form. And the other two places where these two words appear together, Isaiah 34, 11, and Jeremiah 4, 23, these words appear in descriptions of divine judgment signaling desolation. 
That's interesting. Second, verse 2 describes the initial scene upon the earth as being covered with darkness. Now, if you look up this word's usage in the Old Testament, you will find that it also appears in a number of negative contexts. Again, that's interesting. Third, the defining geographical feature of this primeval world is water, the deep, an abyssal ocean. Now, what are we to make of this? Some commentators point to the negative connotations of the terms without form and void and darkness and say, what is described here is a world which has been left desolate as a result of divine judgment. Now, of course, at this point, sin has not yet entered the world. And so we've got to ask, why should the world have been under judgment? And the people that advance this view argue that maybe this was a judgment upon Satan because of the fall. And that's possible. But this view has some problems. First, in Romans 5, death and disorder in the material universe is connected to the fall of humanity, not the fall of Satan. Second, just because something is described negatively in Genesis 1, that doesn't mean that there has to be sin or judgment. We're going to see in chapter 2, verse 18, God looks at Adam before the fall and says it's not good that man should be alone. God looks at something he has made and pronounces it not good. And why is it not good? Because it's incomplete. Because Adam needed Eve. And in the same way, maybe the negative descriptions here in verse 2 are not talking about primeval judgment, but just testifying to the fact that creation was incomplete. The world was not yet ready for life. It was not good. And third, darkness does not always have a negative connotation in the Old Testament. Moses, in a number of passages in Exodus and Deuteronomy, says that God is wrapped in darkness. We're looking for one verse here, Deuteronomy 4.11. So darkness sometimes marks the presence of God, not his absence. And indeed, God's presence was about to be revealed upon this darkened, flooded world. So how should we take verse 2? Is this describing divine judgment on Satan or earth as being incomplete? And the answer is, I don't know. There are plausible arguments in both directions. And it's okay for us to have uncertainty about some of the hard questions we're going to encounter in this book. God has told us precisely what we need to know, and there are some things that God in His wisdom has determined we shouldn't know. Proverbs 25.2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal things. But however we understand verse 2, we need to see it ends optimistically. While the world remains dark, the Spirit of God was hovering upon the face of the waters. Even in this desolate form, God is present and at work. Not just the Father who is about to speak, not just the Son who made all things, but the Holy Spirit is also involved in creation. And so at the end of verse 2, there is a desolate world, but we have reason for optimism to expect things will change. And now they do as God decisively acts. Look at verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Light falls on the world for the first time. Now when we read this, we might think this is describing the sun, but that is not correct. The sun is not made until the fourth day. So where does this light come from? Well, I think we get an answer at the end of the Bible. Because in the new creation, we read in Revelation 22, Night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. The unveiled glory of God is luminous, and God shines His own light forth upon the desolate world. Verse 4. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Now recall the darkness had already been present in the desolate world. It was the absence of God's light. 
And the absence of the things of God is not good. So God doesn't say that the darkness is good here. But God does say that his light is good. And this is now the fifth of seven things we learn about God in this passage. God declares what is good. It's the first time we see this. It won't be the last. Now the Hebrew term translated good is tov. And tov gets at two ideas. First, tov speaks of something's appropriateness or fit. When something fulfills that for which it is intended, it is tov. And so when the text says God's light was tov, it's saying it reflected God's design or purposes. But second, in Hebrew thought, in a moral sense, only God is purely good. Remember Jesus' response to the rich young ruler? No one is good except God alone. That's the idea. And so when God says that something is tov, he's also saying it reflects his own goodness. And so God here declares the light to be tov, just as he will declare all of his creation to be tov. It is good. It reflects his character and his design. Whatever reflects God's character and design is good, and whatever does not reflect God's character or design is not good. I'm making this point here. We will come back to this many times in coming weeks. This will be hugely significant as we talk about next week, God's design for humanity. And as we move towards the fall, because in chapter 3, Eve rejects God's determination of what is good. Instead, we're told that she looked at the forbidden fruit and she saw it was good. She pronounced it tov. She usurped God's role as the arbiter of the good. And this leads to sin, which plunges the cosmos into ruin and death. A problem that will be unmade only when God makes a new creation at the end of history. But here at the beginning, there's not yet sin. And as God's light shines forth, he calls it good. Look at verse 4. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. We read a minute ago that in the new creation, there will be no more night. That is not how our creation began. In our creation, God's light did not perpetually banish the darkness... Instead, what God did was he created time. And he ordered time by allowing his light to shine forth for a period, and then by allowing his light to recede and for darkness once more to predominate. And as this cycle completes, the first day concludes. It has gone from darkness to light. And that's how the Israelites would mark time going forward, beginning with the evening and ending when the sun sets. Now, over the years, many people have argued about the meaning of the word day here. Some argue the seven days of Genesis 1 are just a literary device used by Moses. Others say a day here is a metaphor for a long age of history. However, throughout Genesis, word, uh, Genesis 1, the word yom is used, which is the Hebrew word for day. And in the vast majority of the Old Testament, yom refers to an actual 24-hour period. And that's why our church's teaching statement says that God created the space-time continuum and all basic forms of life from nothing in six 24-hour days. Now let me say this. Genesis 1 is written from the perspective of the earth and really from the perspective of the surface of the earth. You see this in verse 20. As the birds are described as flying across the heavens. Our passage reflects the upward view of a spectator from earth, not the downwards view from heaven. And so when we say that each day of creation was a literal 24-hour period, we mean a literal 24-hour period as it would be marked on the earth. 
Now, of course, we've learned over the last century that time is relative. And so what we might perceive to be 24 hours on Earth might seem to be a much longer period of time in a galaxy far, far away. But I think it's safest to understand each day described in Genesis 1 as being a 24-hour period as it would be marked on Earth. And now the first day ends. Time has begun. Now God develops space. Look at verse 6. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Verse 1 said God was going to create the heavens, and now he does. The abyssal ocean that characterized the world in verse 2 is now disrupted as God separates its waters. Some waters are taken upwards, others remain below, and in between is what Moses calls an expanse or firmament. Now how we understand this firmament really depends on how we understand the fate of the waters taken upwards. A few decades ago, many creation scientists argued that these waters were taken outside Earth's atmosphere and formed a sort of canopy of water around the Earth. Has anybody ever heard this view? And it was argued that this altered atmosphere might explain the very long lifespans that are recorded in Genesis for the earliest humans. And that this canopy of waters was dropped on the Earth during the flood in Genesis 6, and that the resulting atmospheric change explains why people started living shorter lives. In recent years, a number of creation scientists have moved away from this interpretation because they've run experiments that show actually a canopy of water around the Earth would not be conducive for human life. It would elevate temperatures dramatically. So they've moved away from this interpretation, and that's good. Because elsewhere in the Old Testament, it seems clear that these waters that are taken up are actually taken out of the visible universe and into God's own domain. Psalm 104, I think it's verse 3, speaks of the beams of God's palace being laid on the waters, apparently these waters. So this interpretation I'm advancing means that the firmament or the expanse here would be everything outside of the earth in the visible universe, from the air we breathe to the sky above to outer space. And as God creates this vast space between the waters, he assigns it a name, heaven, or again, literally in the Hebrew, heavens just like verse 1. And as the day and light pass once more, the second day ends. But notice that God does not pronounce the heavens to be good. There is more work to be done before God declares the dimension of space to be complete and good. So look at verse 9. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Now God deals with the waters under the heavens, and he aggregates them into various points on the planet and allows dry land to emerge. And once more, God assigns names. The waters are called seas. The dry land is earth. And now God has created not just a desolate world, but an inhabitable planet. And having accomplished his purpose for the dimension of space, now God pronounces it good. Now it reflects his design and character. But in this act of assigning names, we see a sixth truth about God, which is that God is sovereign over creation. And we see that as God issues names. In verse 5, to day and night. In verse 8, to the heavens. In verse 10, to the earth and seas. 
in the ancient Near East world, giving something a name was asserting sovereignty over it. In 2 Kings 23 and 24, Babylonian rulers install puppet kings in Jerusalem and change their names so that they know who's their boss. This also happens to several people in, uh, in an Israelite context. Think of Abram, whom God renamed Abraham, or Jacob, whom God renamed Israel, or Simon, whom Jesus renamed Peter. Only a sovereign can issue you a new name. And here God issues names to creation. God is asserting his sovereignty. This universe belongs to him. And as God speaks, notice he is immediately obeyed. And that's how it's going to be until humanity shakes its fist at God. But God reigns. Now finally, we see one more thing in our passage. Look at verse 11. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. God now creates life. Life does not arise out of non-life spontaneously. That's impossible. Life arises from life, the life that is in God. And that's the last truth we see about God here. He is the giver of life. God gives life to plants here. Next week we'll see him give it to animals and ultimately to humans. God himself in Deuteronomy 32 says, I am he, there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. And that's why Acts 3 calls Jesus, God the Son, the author of life. And as life begins, we read in verse 12, And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. God has built creation. And next week we'll see that God fills creation. But what God has built reflects God's character and design, and that's what we're going to leave off this morning. You say, well, that was a lot of information. What should I take from this today? Well, in our final point now, which is going to be pretty brief, I want you to see that God's creation points to truths about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today we've identified seven truths about God. God exists. God is unique. God exists in community. God created everything. God declares what is good. God is sovereign. And God is the source of life. But friends, each of these truths is not just found in Genesis 1. They're each found throughout the Bible. And each of them points to the central reality of the Bible and the central reality of the Christian faith which is the good news about Jesus. So let me point out some connections to you now to the gospel. God exists in the community of the Trinity. And the New Testament tells us God the Father sent God the Son into this world to take on humanity. John 1 again says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son was born as a human being, Jesus. And Jesus said in John 6, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The Trinity points to the gospel. Moreover, God declares what is good. And all that does not reflect God's design or character is not good. And all that opposes God's design and character is evil. And friends, just like the first human beings decided they could decide what was good for themselves and rejected God's determination of the good, we each and all have done the same thing. Each of us is guilty of sin. We each have done things contrary to God's design for human life. We each have acted contrary to God's character. Isaiah 53 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. God is rightly angry at our sin. We deserve his wrath forever. 
We've said today that God exists. Paul argued it like this in Acts 17 at Mars Hill. God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Friends, know today that God is real, and we will stand before him for judgment. Hebrews 9 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And Paul said at Mars Hill that we can know this is true because of something God did in space and time. Just like Moses showed his readers the existence and attributes of God through God's work in creation, today we can understand the existence and attributes of God through God's saving work. Romans 5.8 says God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died on the cross, taking the penalty that our sin deserved. This reveals God's justice. It shows us how awful the penalty is that we deserved. But it also shows us God's kindness and mercy, that he makes a way to rescue us from that wrath. But more than that, Jesus rose from the dead bodily. And he was seen again many times afterwards by hundreds of people over a 40-day period after his death. People whose entire lives were changed as they interacted with the risen Jesus. This was an astonishing miracle. It proves the reality of God. It confirms the reality of the Christian message. It proves that Jesus is God in the flesh and that his death has atoned for sin. And it proves his declarations that he will judge the world in the end. We have said today that God is unique in the same way Jesus is unique. There is salvation available in no one else. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. We can be saved only by repentantly entrusting ourselves to Jesus on the basis of who he is and what he has done for us. We have said today that God is sovereign. And just as God is sovereign over creation, he is sovereign over salvation. Ephesians 1 says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Before time began, before there was space, God knew and loved and chose a people for his own possession, whom he would adopt into his family and give a glorious inheritance. And to these people, God is the giver of life. Now, speaking of Jesus, John 1 says, In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Friends, we live in a dark world today. Not the darkness of the partially formed world of Genesis 1-2, but the moral darkness of a fallen and corrupted world ruined by sin. And not just is the world darkened, but each of us is individually darkened. Ephesians 2 says we are dead in trespasses and sins. We are totally spiritually blind. We are utterly enslaved to sin. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. All of us begin in this terrible, helpless, hopeless situation. But praise God he hasn't left us there to languish in the dark. Because Jesus brings light to those in darkness. Jesus brings life to those who are dead. And Jesus brings freedom to those who are enslaved. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says that God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, 
has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The God whose light bursts forth upon the darkness of the primeval world makes His light burst forth into the darkness of the hearts of sinners so that we can apprehend the glorious truth of the gospel, so that we can turn to Jesus and be saved. And He does that not just by giving us light, but by performing a new creative act. Because the God who created everything once creates again. Those who He draws to Himself, He makes new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And that's just a foretaste of what he will do at the end. When as Revelation 21 says, God will make a new heaven and a new earth. A new and better cosmos in which God's people dwell forever, illumined not by sun or stars, but by the unveiled light of the resplendent glory of God forever. Friend, today I want you to know God is a great creator. But more than that, God is a great Savior. And the ruin and brokenness of our world and our own lives can be made new. But only if we turn to Christ in faith. Today, if you have never turned from your life of sin to believe in Jesus, I pray you would do that. And today, if you have, then rejoice in the God who made all things good and who is making all things new.